You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hello, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the uh, COVID-19 Gangland Wire studio, doing another podcast for y'all. You know, I'm putting out as many as I can. Fast as I can get one recorded, I'll edit it, which takes about twice as long. If I got an hour-long interview, it takes me about two hours, sometimes two, 15, 20, to get it edited. It's uh, I know it doesn't sound like it should take that long. should be able to just play it right through, but it does because I try to clean up, you know, especially my own ums and ahs and take some of that out of it. And some people are easier to record than others, uh, I got on the line here, Paul Derry. Paul, I first learned about him. I can't remember some on the internet or Facebook page, but I, and and then I contacted him once through, or he contacted me through uh, LinkedIn. This whole social media thing. I make more contacts. I've got you know, I've got Twitter messages. I've got LinkedIn messages. I've got two different email messages i've got people contact me through my website it's uh, i can't hardly keep up with all the the messages i get so you guys if anybody's tried to get hold of me or ask me any questions i haven't responded just try again because sometimes i get lost in the messages but i've got paul waiting on the line here calling down from from up in canada where it's probably still a little bit cold paul welcome thanks for having me gary well, Paul Derry and the Hell's Angels. That's where that's where I first learned about you from. I can't remember. Like I said, I can't remember exactly where. Uh, how cold is it up there right now? By the way. Well, I'm sitting in my car talking. It's only oh, we're in Celsius here in Fahrenheit. I don't know the difference, but it's uh, just zero right now. Zero. Okay, that's like 32 here. I think, or it's under 40 here. I believe. And that's a good day. Because, <laughs> yeah, a lot colder. It's about 65 here, and the sun's out. So as soon as I get done with it, recording this, I'm going to go outside and at least putz around in the yard. <laughs> You're a lucky man. And as I told you, I'm going to go play golf Thursday for the second time this year. They We have to walk. And I was not crazy about walking 18 holes at my age, but I can do it, I found out. And I can walk it, and I'm going to go out and play golf Thursday. Tell me and tell the wiretappers out there a little bit about your early uh, brushes with the law, I guess. And where you, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Nova Scotia? I grew up in Nova Scotia. I was born in Halifax. And then I, uh, my dad was in the Navy. So uh, being in the military, we got transferred around a little bit, although there's not a lot of uh, Navy bases in Canada. But he uh, took a transfer to Greenwood, which is down the Annapolis Valley on an Air Force base. And that's really where I started getting in a little bit of trouble. But anyway, I, I, from, from there, I, uh, you know, it's the first place that I got in trouble with the lawn. It's also the first place I got recruited as an informant. So they both kind of happened right around the same time period. I just started off selling a little bit of weed and, uh, you know, some small time breaking enters. And then uh, I remember this uh, RCMP officer came up and you know, he offered me a, it's a twenty dollar bill to tell him where my uh, where my dealer had his pot. So, yeah, really. Yeah, and this is nineteen seventy nine. I said twenty dollars just to tell you where his pot is. I said sure. So I took the twenty dollars and I, I ran as quick as I could down to his house. And I told him, I said, I just told the cops where your your pot is. You better hide it. <laughs> and uh, so, 
So he got rid of his weed. I made twenty dollars, and I thought, wow, this is this this could be good playing both sides of the fence. Paul, you are a fast thinker, man. <laughs> I'll tell you what. <laughs> I don't know if I would run to a target's uh, house today and tell them I got an operation going, but it worked really? at fifteen. Yeah, yeah, it's a little bit different today. Playing for a little bigger stakes when you can get up in your thirties and forties. And there <laughs> you go. But yeah, Anyhow. I started off small time, small time bits. Uh, got my first sentence when I was sixteen. Got a year in jail then, and uh, got out and uh, went to went to work as an informant and continued in the criminal world, playing both sides all the way through. So did you always like motorcycles? Did you start out riding motorcycles when you were young, or how did you get involved with these Hells Angels? Yeah, I like bikes, but I didn't like bike gangs as much. Uh, but they're a necessary evil. I mean, I, if you're going to you know, go anywhere past, in either world, like you know, when you're playing both sides, it doesn't matter whether you're a criminal or a foreman, you're still trying to get to the same target, the same level. Uh, if I want to buy my dope, i got to work my way up the chain. Yeah. Uh, not going to get any good deals down at the lower levels, so you want to work your way up. And likewise, as an informant, you're certainly not going to get any big operations at the lower levels. So, um, Hell's Angels were the predominant uh, dealers in, in the area uh, that I lived, and they had the best deals on cocaine. So that, and, and I uh, running strippers, which is something I was heavily involved in back then, too. Hmm. Now, I, I watched this uh, Netflix uh, series, Bad Blood, and Vito Rizzuto, who was a Sicilian crime family uh, in Montreal, and, and they talked about using the bikers quite a little bit, and they never identified them as Hell's Angels, but is there was there any connection with uh, your Hell's Angels and the uh, Sicilian Mafia up there? The Mafia in Montreal runs the the. the the exotic uh, dancer network, well, the sex industry in general, and the drugs. I mean, everything's run through them. I always say that, you know, it's like the mafia are the owners and the Hells Angels are their property managers up here. Yeah, yeah. That's it's about the best way to look at it. Uh, there's nothing that's going to get done. And then, then there's, you know, a few other, the Irish gang, you know, the West End gang in Montreal. Uh, Quebec would be our, our probably main uh, biker I guess headquarters for Canada. So now I have a question about that. Uh, is and I noticed here in Kansas City, is the bikers always furnished girls for the different strip clubs around, and whether they were Italian connected or not. And I think almost all of them had an Italian owner. Only a couple of them were really mob guys, but they always furnished the girls. They'd, they'd bring them in. They'd stand around and and kind of hang out in that place for the evening and is that uh, i mean that seems like that's all over the united states and canada too yeah that's i mean that's definitely what was going on here in canada in fact that was how i get in with the hell's angels the most is i uh started uh, running strippers for the for the bikers in halifax and then i moved to ontario and then did it for all of southern ontario which included the hamilton area which again took me into more mob guys uh, you know yeah, Papalias and and those guys back. This is all back in the mid nineties. Um, but yeah, we we supplied uh, girls from the Hell's Angels to clubs all through Southern Ontario back then, mostly. And they were all, you know, we were bringing Czechoslovakians, Romanians. Yeah, back in that day, and the mob mob was all running that. 
they, so, they had a guy that we'd meet in Ontario all the time, and he would tell us who who, uh, who to take where. What were there uh, girls coming over? Uh, illegal immigrants uh, being smuggled in, or were they already there? And, and... there was guys who went over specifically to pick pick out uh, girls, and then this immigration lawyer who worked for the mob and uh, was running out of uh, Mississauga, Ontario. He would uh, he would get them all over, get all the paperwork done, and get them over here. And then uh, we were we would pick them up at the airport and take them to the different clubs. Huh? And why, like a guy like you who would uh, would help manage that? Then would you like help find them places to live and kind of get them settled in? And if there was any problems, the club owner would come to you. Yeah, that was. We had a, a company called Exotic Globe Network, which was run by a friend of mine back then. And uh, in fact, when I got out on parole in '96, I had to get permission from my parole officer to drive dancers around. And they debated about whether I should be allowed to or not being on parole. And they said, well, we have dancers on parole. Why can't he run them? <laughs> so um, so they had me run it. So I had to report to my parole officer the amount of money I was making. And I was being paid, obviously, through these guys. So it was an interesting uh, experience. I mean, it went into a, a lot of, you know, it gave me a really good glimpse into human trafficking by the end of really? it. And, uh, in fact, when I left that world behind, that's I started working. I went changed my life and went back to work for a nonprofit that helped take people out of that world, and I've done that ever since. So interesting that because uh, uh, I would imagine there'd be being in that position, there'd be a lot of drama you would have to deal with with those girls too. I would think nonstop, nonstop. nonstop. That's what I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the fighting amongst them, the, you know, the fighting and then the pampering and then, the, you know, having to drive them here. And, and then you had to move them every week. So um, Saturday night, you'd have to start moving them from uh, one club to another, one city to another. And, uh, and then you'd have to move them in vans with each other. And some of them yeah. hated each other. It was It sounds like a, a real exotic job to be with strippers all yeah, the time. Really. Yeah, I, yeah. There's there's nothing fun about it. I I had a headache constantly. I can imagine. Yeah, I'd noticed down here that they were kind of seemed like they're on a circuit. That they actually went up to Omaha, I understand, and there's a strip club down in Columbia, Missouri, and and I think there was one over in uh, Kansas side, and so they kind of. They would show up at one, and then they'd be gone for a while. But then they'd come back, and and then they'd be gone for a while. So I I didn't really ever get into looking at it, but it's interesting that that is how it worked. It's a you know it's a it's a sad it's a sad existence for them, and you know they, then you've got the the bike clubs that are actually taking girls that owe the money and 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 putting transferring them to the clubs uh, worldwide, not just you know not yeah. just in Canada. So. Um, you know, it's, it's since I've been working, you know, since I left that world behind 20 years ago now, I, I, I've really been deep into uh, trying to take girls out of that. And, and guys, don't get me wrong, these yeah. guys all caught up in, in the human trafficking as, as well. Um, it's a sad, sad existence. It's it is now. kind of a shame, shame, shame to have ever been a part of it. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, his wife is part of a church group and and she he and her both have turned some some hitches in the penitentiary and come back out and straighten their lives out and and his wife goes with a, another uh, ex dancer 
uh, and a couple other gals from this one church, and they go on Monday nights, they go around to the different clubs, and they just buy some roses. And and I was talking to his wife about it, and, and she said, we just give them a rose, and we've got a card printed up, and just say, you know, if you ever get tired of this, well, we give you this rose to let you know somebody cares, and if you ever get tired of this, why, here's a number to call. And so they've had several call in and and, and help extricate them out of that life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I I, I got into, uh, I ended up going to Regina, Saskatchewan when I first changed, uh, and we had a, I went out with a group that uh, had a bus, and they went out on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights taking girls off the streets that had been put on by um, different organized crime groups, and uh, especially within the Native community. And uh, I ended up getting a safe house uh, built, well, I bought a safe house for them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. There's an unending problem there. It's, it's just constant. I, I could fill a hundred houses if, if the resources were there. Yeah. So, Paul, let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this cocaine case and, and your, this particular situation where you ended up working with, um, Sergeant Shane Halliday and and that particular murder. But first thing, how do you how do you get involved with the Hell's Angels and and selling their cocaine? Just a little bit at a time, hanging around and and providing a little bit for free, and acting like being a guy that had a source, or or you buy it from them and sell it. You know what? Here's here's the deal. Organized crime is all the same. Whether whether the mafia, whether the Hell's Angels, I don't care who they are. They all love money. Yeah. So the more the more of a money maker you are, or portray yourself to be, uh, the, you'll come to their attention. Don't use drugs, make lots of money, and uh, you know they'll 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 find you out because they're always looking for it. <laughs> so yeah, you work you work your way up the ladder that way, and uh, you know you start with Shane Halliday. Shane Shane Halliday actually arrested me for a murder in two thousand, and. Uh, you know, today we're, we're probably, he's probably one of my closest friends. Um, it started off as an operation. I was trying, as an informant, you're always trying to get operations. Um, so as I, you, you want an agent operation where you're going to get paid the bigger bucks. Yeah. So uh, I was, tr- I, I got in with these guys and I was, it was a major uh, cocaine. We were supplying all of the city with cocaine. And the Hells Angel that was supplying him also ordered the hit on a, a, the ex, the bodyguard of the ex Hells Angels president. Well, I was there when he ordered the hit. He ordered the hit to my partner with me there. And I thought, okay, so I ended up involved in tracking the guy down. Well, meantime, I'm calling the RCMP, my handler, my old handler from the RCMP. And, and Shane is from a municipal department. So, He's with Halifax Regional Police at the time. So as I'm calling for the three weeks leading up to the murder, I'm calling them trying to get something done about it. The murder ends up taking place, and uh, I was the driver. So <laughs> not only was I the driver, but I supplied the gun and I helped track him down. I mean, I was thinking that it was going to get stopped because I was feeding the information as we went on, but it didn't. A lot of bureaucracy, and it ended up not getting done. Um, so I ended up getting arrested for the murder and I finally gave them a card from the justice department after about 15 hours of interrogation and said, here, go ask them what happened. And that ended the interview and led to Shane coming in and making a deal with me to go work undercover and wear a wire 
to uh, prove that all of these other people were involved in this in this murder, including the Hells Angel. So I had to wear a wire into the club, into the clubhouse, and and, and such. So you had not worn a wire before. You had given information, but you hadn't worn a wire. No, I hadn't worn a wire, but I had done operations against. In fact, I did an operation in '96, where we began an operation that ended up getting uh, uh, canceled in another because uh, another operation became a bigger, had bigger targets. But in '96, against the same clubhouse, and it came back in 2000, and, and was still able to do one, even though they had already issued a contract on me. Wow. So that night of that murder, how did you get, how did they get you roped into that? I mean, did it just start going down? You got caught in a, in a position that you, you couldn't get out of? Yeah, just couldn't get out. It was actually, it took place in the middle of the afternoon. Um, we had been tracking the guy for uh, a number of uh, weeks and uh, we were waiting. So we had somebody else waiting at a drug house that, uh, that he frequented. And the call came in that he was there, and I was sitting with my partner when it came in, and he said he's there, and he grabbed the gun, and he said, let's go. So you don't really tell a guy with a gun that's about to go to a murder, and you know he's going to the murder because you helped plan it with him. Yeah. Uh, you can't really tell him you're not going. <laughs> I changed my mind. Really? So I got in the car, and we're driving over there. Now, he's a black man. He's about six foot, and I said, Look, you're six foot, you're black. It's the middle of the afternoon. You, you know, you, you, they're going to know it's you. So he turned around, and handed it to the guy in the back seat, and told him to go do it. So hmm. I said, still didn't get out of it. A deal like this, these these dudes, they they really work to set somebody up like that. They had people watching the guy, watching the places where he might show up, and, and all ready to call back in to the clubhouse or the bar where you were, where the, somebody that made the final decision was hanging out. And as soon as he showed up, then they, they, they dropped the dime and said, hey, he's here, and then they gear up and go. Yeah, it was kind of an everyday thing, right? Like If you watch the documentary they did on Outlaw Bikers, some of it's dramatized, but one of the things that it really kind of shows is it's a part of everyday business. I didn't see, I mean, I'd like to say it was abnormal, but they had a list of people that had to be killed all the time. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like it was just this one murder and it just so happened he was the one that I was there for. Um, I know of at least two others that would took place, uh, you know, the month before and, and during our operation that, um, similarly that I knew those guys were on the list. One was an attempt, one was an actual hit. Um, but they were all on the same list that this guy was on when uh, when when we got that order. So so like this club, I'm, I'm thinking about, uh, I mean, you were there, you're all in, in, in this place. They have a clubhouse usually someplace. Do, do they have like an inner sanctum where only the uh, what you see on TV, they have a some place they go where it's just club members only and, and nobody, everybody else that may be hanging around or what they call hangarounds uh, or somebody like yourself that they're doing business with. You, they say, okay, you guys got to leave now, and it's members only. Yeah, they, t- they typically have, I mean, depending on the clubhouse, I mean, some are, are looser than others, but... Typically, they have bars that they all run or private clubs all in and around their their own clubhouse anyway. So uh, a lot of the business is done at different. Uh, some of them are the strip bars. Uh, this particular one, there was a private club just around the corner, and then there was a bar just attached to the clubhouse. There was a, you'd be buzzed into one of the private clubs, 
and uh-huh. and in that one there was only guys that were connected that were allowed upstairs. So the downstairs, you, you could get in if you were kind of a, a, a hang around, but uh, unless you were high enough uh, as an associate, you couldn't go upstairs where business is done. And there's some pretty heavy meetings down there. So the associates are the guys that could help them make money in, in the dope business and the uh, and the stripper business. It sounds like well, they're t- typical pyramid, right? They've got a they got a cell. Every member's got a cell of, of people and uh, and the area, and, um, and and it works so that you know if he he gets taken down, really you're only taking down his cell. Oh, oh, I I see. It's a little bit like yeah, like a mob guy will have a crew. Working for him, who goes out and they'll go out and, and do burglaries or in home invasion robberies or, or you know, high end robberies. And, and then when one of them gets taken down, the only guy anybody in that cell can or that crew can rat out is that one mob guy. Exactly. Same, same, exact same, exact same setup. So, and the exact same thing, right? We had boosters that would come along every morning with all the stuff they had gotten the night before. You have guys that, you know, this is going on or that's going on, this deal's going on, or, you know, here's a robbery over here. You know, if you look at my, if you, if you look at my inside a police informant's mind, I wrote a chapter called, um, Streets of Blood. And it talks about how, uh, the organized crime world comes alive at night when everybody else goes to sleep. And just, you know, how they feed off the blood and the, and the misery of people. And, you, you know, it's a really, I think it's a pretty good chapter as far as the accurate picture of what's really going on out there at night that most people want to turn a blind eye to. Yeah, really, that's, uh, I didn't really really think about how organized they, they must be. I know this, uh, our local club, these uh, Galloping Gooses, we, uh, we threw a pin register on a strip club, uh, um, an Italian kid named Calderero ran it, and we had some information he may have been doing a little cocaine and and we threw a, stri- a pin register on it and started finding calls to different people who had drug connections and one of them was a uh, galloping goose and we ended up serving a search warrant on his house and found a kilo and 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 he died shortly after that of an overdose actually but uh, I, I would imagine he was in the cocaine business with it could never go beyond him into the motorcycle gang you gotta, you gotta wonder where the creativity comes from. Right? The galloping gooses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sounds like they should be up in Canada. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've often wondered about that name. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've we've got some crazy ones too up here. Don't worry. Yeah. And 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 they weren't very much. I think this uh, this Italian kid probably was maybe the brains of that whole organization, anyhow. But he, and he liked to ride bikes, but he was not you know a member. Though we knew who the members were. And when the ATF finally took them all down in one fell swoop, it was basically uh, taking them down for selling uh, meth to each other <laughs> in a couple of of associates and hangarounds and one one informant. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I mean. And go back to the cell thing again. It's it's interesting when we got arrested, how many people quickly tried to make a deal. And and I, I've said to you previously, and I say it again, like they count the guys at the top count on everybody believing that there's a code. And as I said, uh, you can't have you can't have solidarity amongst self-centered people. 
these people are all out for themselves and there is no code you know to speak of I love I love it when anybody wants to argue with me about rats and, and and all that kind of stuff and you know I I get into some heated conversations on social media with them. Oh God I I see it all the time I've got a couple of guys that I know pretty well and and really one of them was a guy that that came in on his own and really liked the excitement of being on he was a contract agent basically and he get and he's written a book of course and they get on there and they call him a rat and this that and the other and I always come and I said. No, he was just an agent, and then he was just an agent that didn't carry a badge, and all that fires him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, they, and yeah, they don't like it. They like to think. Well, they like to think everybody. They're, like, they're all about as solid as a soup sandwich. I, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you know, it's a big act. I, you always find out in prison too. You know, when I was, I got a seven-year sentence, and when I was doing that sentence, I remember I was always in the hole, and I used to think. Well, how come all those solid, tough guys are out there in population walking around, and I'm always getting in trouble and thrown in the hole? <laughs> like, everybody suspected me of being a rat, and I'm like, well, that's that's great, but all you solid guys never seem to get in trouble. What's up with that? Yeah. So let's go back to, we kind of got, uh, I allowed uh, myself to get distracted here. Let's go back to that murder. So that, that guy got murdered, and, and they arrested you. They've interrogated you, and uh, Ser- Sergeant Halliday comes in, and, and you end up wearing a wire to get people to implicate themselves. So what, what, tell us a little bit about what that was like. You had to go into the clubhouse, the bars, and, and I bet that wire felt like it was a 90-pound pack up underneath your shirt, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I can tell you, t- technology in 2000 probably is a little, uh, little worse than today. But it, it wasn't horrible. I mean, it was a, it was a square box, a little bigger than the size of a cigarette package that I put down my pants, and I had probes that came up and uh, taped just under my nipples. So yeah. Um, now you know, towards the end, as it was getting a little hotter, one of one of the, the X-Hell's angels that worked for them. I write about it in my book. He comes in and tries to kill me on the Thursday before the operation ended. He's he's long dead now, but he comes to the house that is all wired up, and uh, you know, so the police are listening to everything that's going on in there. And we know he's on his way over, so they take me to a safe house, and yeah. we go to this we go to the safe house, and they send the squad car over because he breaks into the house. So they have him arrested while he's breaking into the house. And he calls from inside the house. He calls back to the clubhouse and says, he's not here. We'll get him next time. Oh. And uh, it, we're listening to that at the at the safe house. So <laughs> they turn around and they, they took him in, hit, got him into cells for the long weekend because it was Easter weekend. In fact, it was April 17th of 2000. So it was, uh, it was, it was well, I wasn't, it was April 13th that he tried to kill me. April 17th, the operation ended. That was on Thursday night, and then Tuesday they wanted me to go back and meet with the actual uh, full patch. They wanted me to have one more meeting. Well, that's the guy he called from within and said we, we couldn't get him. And I have to do one more wire meet with him after this happened. That one, I can tell you, the sweat on me, I think, took three or four times for them to tape the the probe oh, onto my skin because it just yeah. kept falling off. I was sweating so bad. Yeah, it I was can scary. Imagine. Yes, it would have been because you're in there all by yourself, and and it was it's probably just a tape recorder. It probably wasn't like a sending unit where somebody was sitting out listening to what was going on. Or did you? Was, was it, it a combination? 
just taping. That's what that's what most of them are. Those sending units they don't really work that very very they're good anyhow. Probably modern times they do, but but back then and that was two thousand was kind of they were changing over to the more modern stuff. Things started getting digital and they've got some really cool stuff now. But back then, like the, they called them a Kel kit. And you never knew, uh, and they were really hard to hear, and they were not very dependable. My guess is that I'd be dead before they ever got in there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I threw a Kel kit on a guy, and he was going to go in, and uh, I needed him to get the uh, VIN off of a card that he was pretty sure was stolen. So he's in there talking to this guy about buying this car and looking at this car, and I guess we didn't get it on him very good, and it fell out of his belt and down on the floor. And my friend just reached over, and or a friend, I guess he became a friend in the end. That's like we talked about that relationship with the police and informants. Yeah. And, and he reached over, and he scoops it up, and he said, that damn pager keeps falling off my belt and stuck it in his pocket, and the guy didn't even trip to it at all. Yeah. <laughs> that was quick thinking there. Those things happen. Did you have anything like that? <laughs> you know, probably the the closest. I, I had two two incidents that I remember that probably scared me a little bit. Other than having guns to my head, guns in my mouth. It's funny. I heard one of your guests say the other day that he wasn't scared of anything, and I thought, well, you couldn't have been in the biker world too long. Then. <laughs> yeah. Well, because <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to tell you that you start getting a gun put in your mouth or or, or the back of your head. You might not be scared in a minute because you, you're in shock, but yeah. uh, that fear comes. That fear will come. But yeah, I had uh, I had a guy when I was coming into the private club one day. He comes up to me and he's he's old guy. End up getting stabbed. Death. He he was one of the boosters, but he comes up out of the blue, and and just says I had asked him a question about. Uh, a lump I had. His brother was a doctor, and I had asked him to ask him about a bump that I had on my uh, esophagus. Just yeah. curious if he might know what it might be. Well, I'd asked him that months ago, months before this. Yeah. Well, that day he comes, he comes right up to me and just puts his hand on the on the lump and says, "And I, I, did, I just put on the wire. I just got the wire on, and I thought no. he's going to feel these probes." So I, I pushed his, his uh, hands away and uh, quickly said, what the hell are you doing? Get away from me. I'm not like that. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I, I thought, it's a good thing that, you know, it looked like the probes probably looked like I just had really hard nipples. But it was, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it, that, that, that was a scary moment. And the other time you were talking about pagers falling out. Uh, years ago, I was I was uh, sitting in a house and it was with uh, about three other dealers and we were all talking about a deal. And pager went off and I reached over on the coffee table to pick up the pager and it was my handler and because he had sent a code that we had had figured out for us and I went oh okay and uh, so I went off to call him and uh, another pager uh, went off and somebody picked it up and said. Hey, you got my pager, and it came oh. over and found that it was the other guy's pager. So he was also an informant for the same guy. So oh. here we were, two informants. Oh. <laughs> so, so I'm like, huh, that's interesting. So I called up my hand and said, "What's up? Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're trying to get me busted? Really? Yeah, I never admitted to it, but I'm, I'm guessing he had two of us. <laughs> he wanted a little double check on you, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you are you were a double check on him? We don't know which, but <laughs> well, you know what? We did do a lot of counter surveillance, and that's that's something organized crime is big on is counter surveillance. Yeah, 
Yeah, when you're in those when you're in those clubs, what kind of uh, you know you're driving around? I mean, I followed a lot of guys around, and and sometimes you get burnt, and sometimes you don't. What kind of counter surveillance measures did you did you guys take? Uh, you know, I, I speak at first handling courses a lot. I tell people, you know, the cops that I, I speak to when they're learning about um, dealing with informants. I, the criminal world is very, you guys, you know, as a police officer, you know this, you, the police are studying us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. Um, you know, they're just changing men over or women over, but they're, they're, they're doing it 24 seven with their analysts and their profilers and all of those things. Well, if you're a smart criminal at all, then you're going to be doing the exact same thing back. You better be studying the police as much as they're studying you, uh, or you're going to prison sooner than later. I mean, you're all going eventually, but, yeah. Um, you know, so just doing simple things, making a file. I kept a file on everybody I, I, I thought was uh, it was prudent to do. Um, my handler, I always kept a file on everything I could get on them. You know, any cough that I could, you get their addresses, get any dirt you can, whatever they like. If you've seen them at the bar on a Friday night, you, you, what do they drink? Everything. Interesting, interesting. You know, I used to have a guy that... I I didn't I wasn't the one that developed him. Another policeman did, and and I got introduced into him, and and we really never used him for any operation. We just used him for kind of general stuff because he was a career criminal, was really in that world. And but after every time I left, and we were always a lot of heavy drinking going on. And every time I left, the next morning I'd wake up and I'd think. What did I say to that dude last night? I mean, he he kind of knew my weakness back when I was young, and and uh, <laughs> uh, and I always felt like he he picked my mind and got more out of me than I ever got out of him. He'd give some little tidbits, but but I'm not sure <laughs> his game was to get as much as he could out about the police. He was a piece of work. Well, you know what? I write I write a chapter on that too, controlling conversations, and yeah, uh, in, in that same book because it's like boxing, right? You can't throw a punch without taking one. You're always going to give information whenever you're taking information. So you're going to have a conversation with a source. That source is going to get information out of you. Now, the better you are at your job, the the, the worse the worst <laughs> we're going to have, the uh, worst time we're going to have, right? But it'll yeah. happen. Yeah. All right, Paul, this has been great. Right, will you come back and let's do that inside of Police Informant's Mind? That sounds like a pretty interesting uh, show we could do. Yeah, for sure. Let's let's do that one. And just kind of finish this off about uh, the the takedown on this operation. Uh, what, kind of what was a what was a final on uh, that takedown on that murder? Was that was that a whole operation on cocaine charges and the murder and everything? You know what. Uh, they they stuck to just the murder and uh, I I sure there was lots of intel that went off and and caused a lot of other but well, I know there was I just but my focus and, and the chain and and the guys that were around us was focused on the murder but in the end we end up uh, there was four uh, convictions uh, nineteen years of trials or yeah, the last trial the last appeal went through this past year and. Out of the mall, one got stayed because he, it's just been too long. Too many witnesses had died. There's yeah. a third, third, third appeal. So there was two first degree murders, uh, life sentences, one second degree murder, and then that one guy got stayed. But the Hell's Angel, the full patch Hell's Angel, he, he's he he was gone for life. He was gone for life. Well, good. It essentially closed down the Hell's Angel uh, chapter. Yeah. Oh, it was him going to jail. It brought it down under six and. They have to have six, a minimum of six to keep a charter open. Oh, 
Oh, my, interesting. Did you have to testify all, off and on over all those years? All of those years. God, I bet you were sick of that. Well, I could write a book just on uh, being on the stand. Uh, it's uh, it's a interesting process to go through uh, being in witness protection and then going back and forth for preliminary hearings, murder trials, appeal trials. And you have no life for yourself for the 18 years, 19 years. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you, you've created a life, it seems like, so uh, that says that's a testament to your uh uh, your brains and ingenuity and stick-to-itiveness, which uh, all are, are qualities that I always respect in anybody. Well, let's you have me back again soon, I will. I will. Let's do this in, inside a police informer's mind. Now, folks, uh, he's got uh, Paul Derry, D-E-R-R-Y, and he's got uh, Paul Derry, all one word, P-A-U-L-D-E-R-R-Y dot C-A. Uh, it's be www.paulderry dot C-A. That's for Canada, I guess. And uh, you've got uh, books. You got uh, you don't know me. Uh, I'm in RCMP witness protection inside a police informant's mind and treacherous how the RCMP allowed a Hell's Angels to kill. Uh, so I, I actually I want to talk a little more about the makeup of the RCMP and the different uh, police departments up there. A lot of people don't understand that. So uh, that would be another thing we could get into in this inside the police informant's mind. So uh, we'll we'll do that sometime in the next month or two. How about that? That that would be great. It would be a great lead into uh, the witness protection book. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. We got that, too. Okay, great. Paul, I really appreciate it. No problem, Gary. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Bye. If you're a veteran and you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD that's connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital in your area, or there's a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255, and press 1 if you're a vet. You can go to www.ptsd.va.gov, and this site contains a lot of uh, interesting information and a lot of good resources. When the COVID's over, as we say, when the COVID-19 virus is over and everybody's getting back to work, you can hit me up for a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on my Venmo app, Gangland Wire. I've got my two movies out there, Brothers Against Brothers, the Sabella Spiro War, and Gangland Wire, which is the kind of the story behind the movie Casino, the story about the mob war in Kansas City that led to the uncovering of the skimming information. Got Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. Get the Kindle version. You can link the, uh, I've linked the wiretaps, actual audio from the wiretaps to sections in the book. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.